when there's baseball to be played. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. You're listening to Quick Hub. A few months ago, I was remarking to my wife that any idiot can start a podcast, and then we decided to prove that theory, and so that's why we're presenting to you now, Quick Hook. This is a uh, baseball history podcast. Episodes will be about half hour in length. (laughs) It'll be hosted by me, Andy Francis. Uh, Along for the ride will be my wife, Laura Francis, and our six-month-old baby, Harper Lee Francis, who's already making her presence felt. And before we go any further, I just want to say thank you, whoever you are, for giving us a chance and for supporting this project by giving Quick Hook a listen. Hopefully we'll keep it entertaining and informative. Maybe you'll even listen all the way to the end. You've already made it 60 seconds so far, and I think that's more than any of us were anticipating. So thank you. The first historical baseball figure that we'll be taking a look at is Rube Foster, who was considered by many, and certainly uh, considered by himself, to be the best black pitcher and maybe just the best pitcher, period, in America in the early 20th century, before he moved on to be an innovative manager and ultimately the founder and chief executive of the Negro National League, which was the black baseball league in America before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947. And so, without further ado, let's begin. We dive into the life of Rube Foster. So Rube Foster's real name is Andrew Foster, and he was born on September 17, 1879, in the town of Calvert in East Texas. Calvert now is a little spot on the map with less than a thousand people, but 140 years ago, it was booming, as was the American South generally in the time when cotton was king. Calvert at one point actually was home to the world's largest operating cotton gin and was a significant trading depot for cotton, alfalfa, livestock, vegetables. It was a big railroad stop. So as a result, it was a fairly developed city for its time. It had a lot of hotels, it had fine homes, theaters, multiple opera houses. But uh, Andrew Foster was black, so this was a world that would remain largely inaccessible to him and anybody who looked like him. The trend in Texas mirrored the trend in the South generally. So, you know, we're right in the post-Civil War period. Slavery has just been abolished. The 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment have been passed. Those are obviously incredible things. They represented amazing racial progress in a very unenlightened time. You know, even in Texas, in the post-Civil War period, there were actually African-American men who were elected to the state legislature and had other uh, elected positions around the state. But when Reconstruction ended and the federal government pulled the military out of all the southern states and left them largely to govern themselves... Jim Crow became the law of the land, and Andrew Foster grew up in that world in which black people were systematically relegated to the status of second-class citizens. Both of his parents were actually born slaves. Andrew was named after his father, the Reverend Andrew Foster, of the American Methodist Episcopal Church. Now, the AME Church and its history deserves its own conversation. The first Protestant denomination founded by black people, created in response to the American Methodists, refusing to worship alongside African Americans who were attempting to worship in their churches. So this was a a church or denomination that was steeped in the struggle for civil and human rights from its very inception, and Andrew Foster Sr. was actually the presiding elder for the AME Church in this region of the Deep South after Reconstruction. I think that's probably a fascinating story in its own right, 
in the um, in the readings that I've done about Andrew Foster's life, there's not much said about his father's position, other than uh, to note the fact that he was instilled from a very young age. Rube Foster was with a deep religious fervor that was apparent even when he was a boy. So Rube Foster was was not perhaps like you and me when it comes to enthusiasm for ecclesiastical duties. And I'll just speak for myself, but I grew up going to church, and I was not always thrilled at the prospect of Sunday service and memorizing my Bible verses. But almost everyone who remarks on Rube Foster's upbringing mentions how he loved going to church, he loved reading the Bible, and he actually would remain a deeply religious man for the rest of his life. He was the fourth of six children, but tragically only three of those kids survived into adulthood, and this is at a time when the NIH estimates that 26.5% of African Americans born did not live to the age of five, which is just a staggering number. So anyways, as a child, he had two passions, church and baseball. Foster was an asthmatic, but he was a big, broad-shouldered kid. He was very athletically gifted, and from the start, he was a natural leader. The future baseball executive was actually organizing neighborhood teams and little leagues in his neighborhood when he was a kid, which I think is remarkable. His father actually was trying to discourage Andrew's interest in baseball, but he was the obvious star of every team he was on. He loved the game. Andrew was always closer to his mother than his father uh, as he was becoming a teenager. A lot of the traits that would carry him to great heights later on were becoming obvious. He was willful, he was intelligent, he was determined. And uh, unfortunately, when he was 14 years old in 1893, his life changed because his mother died. And his father decided he was going to move to a different part of Texas. And so Andrew Foster, at the age of 14, chose not to join his dad and instead decided to strike out on his own and try to make it as a professional baseball player. So Andrew caught on with a team that barnstormed in Texas and its neighboring states, a team called the Waco Yellow Jackets. And if you don't know what barnstorming is, they're not referring to the invasion of farm structures. What barnstorming was, it was a very common practice in the early days of baseball where a team would get organized in a certain place or city, like in this instance, Waco. And you would set out on the road. And you wouldn't necessarily have a set schedule of games or even opponents, but you would have a travel schedule. And so you would go from Waco to Fort Worth, and you would get to town, and maybe you would have communicated with another team that you knew was going to be in Fort Worth at the same time, and you would have a few games scheduled. Or maybe you would get to town, and you would find out there was another team in town, and so you would schedule a few games against them. Maybe you get to Fort Worth, and there is no other pro team in town. So you schedule a few games against the best local amateur nine, and you charge for tickets to the game, and you split the gate receipts amongst the other team and your players and your staff and your sponsor, and you go on to the next town and you try to do the whole thing again. So this was the life that uh, Andrew Foster was signing up for at uh, 14 years old, and he uh, excelled, at least on the field. He uh, was listed as the Waco Yellow Jackets ace at the age of 18 years old in 1897. And various reports at that time list him as standing between 6'1 and 6'4 and weighing anywhere between 210 to 225 pounds. While with Waco, the teenage Foster faced white major leaguers training in Fort Worth, and he started to develop a reputation beyond Texas. 
Now, despite the on-field success, he later did not portray this as a very happy time of his life. He said the players would have to, at times, sleep outside because they didn't have any place to stay. Professional baseball players actually were considered low and uh, ungentlemanly, even amongst fellow African Americans of the day. Piling that on top of the uh, just the everyday discrimination and prejudice in Texas at the turn of the century, it made Foster ambitious to spread his wings and fly north. And uh, he got his chance when he was noticed by scouts from Chicago during a stop with the Yellow Jackets in Hot Springs, Arkansas in the spring of 1902. Uh, that was when he received a telegram from one of the most influential early figures in black baseball, a guy named Frank Leland. He was the owner of the Chicago Union Giants. Leland's telegram invited Foster to join the Giants in Chicago, but warned him that he would be put to a severe test because the Union Giants would play all the best clubs, including Major League White teams. Foster wrote back in a telegram saying, quote, If you play the best clubs in the land, as you say... It will be a case of Greek meeting Greek. I fear nobody. Okay, so you're saying this kid is 14 years old. He was 14 earlier in the story. So how old is he at this point? At this point, he's 23. It's uh, 1902. He was born in 1879. So he was traveling for however many years. Well, he, he left home. He set out. His dad took off for South Texas, said adios, and... Rube Foster decided to set out on his own at 14. Whereas, as you know, when I was 28 years old, my mother was still making me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at home. What were you doing at 14? <laughs> at 14, I was uh, riding my bike a lot and uh, reading books, and I would watch about 150 or 260 Braves games every year. So I'm basically the exact same shit that I'm doing now. <laughs> what were you doing when you were 14 years old? I don't even want to say it. It's just like, like, I don't know, like sun tanning and trying my first cigarette or something. Oh, I can see why you wouldn't want to say that. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> so before we go further, I just want to describe what a, what a typical black baseball team season would be like in these days. The kind of schedule that Foster was signing up for when he left home at 14. So the seasons for what in those days would be called a Negro or a colored baseball team would start in the early spring, and they would run through late fall. And teams would expect to have a game almost every single day, and they would play against black and white teams alike, as we mentioned earlier, pro, semi-pro, amateur opponents. They would get around on boats, trains, farm wagons, and later buses. In the winter, some players would actually continue their seasons in California, Florida, Cuba, or Mexico. So a lot of the really good black professional baseball players in those days, it's estimated that they played over 300 games a year. There were not that many guys at all good enough to make a full-time living playing baseball, but the average black pro in those days made about 40 bucks a month with a stipend of 30 cents a day for meals. So that's $588 a year. Adjusted for inflation, you're still talking about less than 20 grand a year. So So how did they make a living from that? Well, it definitely wasn't easy. Uh, and the fact of the matter was these teams all had white owners who were more than happy to take advantage of the fact that they could suppress the salaries of their black employees. Even though on the best black teams, the talent on the roster stacked up with the talent on Major League rosters, and that was borne out in the results when the professional black teams would play Major League white teams. And I think it's worth emphasizing just how much the experience of the professional black baseball player would change from the start of Rube Foster's playing career to the end of his career as an executive. And that was thanks largely to his efforts and his leadership. 
that black baseball would become more professionalized and black players would, uh, would have more financial security. So Foster makes his way to Chicago. He's 22 years old. He uh, is a pure power pitcher. His repertoire starts with a, a very effective, overpowering fastball. The man could just throw cheese. One contemporary report on Foster stated that his fastball was as fast or faster than Amos Rusi's, who was one of the first great fireballers. And it's nowadays thought that Rusi threw his fastball in the mid to upper 90s. So we can speculate, you know, if in those days they were comparing the two, Foster probably threw about that hard in the mid to upper 90s. He also had a great curveball, but besides the fastball, what Rube Foster, the pitcher, was really known for was two things. His fadeaway pitch and his craftiness on the mound, his guile, his, his mental ability. The fadeaway pitch is what we nowadays call a screwball. It's a form of changeup that breaks in the opposite direction of what you expect it to, the opposite direction that a slider breaks. So Foster, as a right-handed thrower, his fadeaway pitch would not break away from a right-handed batter. It would instead dive in on them. And it was one of the most lethal weapons of its era. It was a very famous pitch. If you've heard the term fadeaway pitch as a baseball fan used in the context of early baseball, that's most likely in association with Christy Mathewson, who was considered uh, in his day the greatest pitcher who ever lived. Uh, He was one of the most famous people on earth. And he built his dominance on the screwball, what he called the fadeaway pitch. And he may have called it that because it's long been believed that it was none other than Rube Foster himself who taught Christy Mathewson the fadeaway pitch at the behest of Mathewson's manager, John McGraw. And John McGraw was actually a friend of Rube Foster's and scouted black baseball teams extensively. For Foster, the pairing of his fadeaway pitch with the overwhelming, ridiculous fastball it was almost unfair. But his second great knack was for the mental side of the game, and he took a lot of pride and joy uh, in his guile. He definitely developed the reputation as someone who would do anything to gain a mental edge. His favorite tactic was stalling, especially in big situations, which sounds simple but can be dramatically effective. If the bases were loaded late in a close game and Foster had a guy in a full count, all of a sudden he would walk off the mound and he would start like having a casual conversation with the third baseman, and then he would work his way over to the shortstop and see what he's what he was doing. And he would get back on the mound. He would throw three or four pickoff throws to first. He would adjust his uniform, fix the dirt. You know, he wanted to ratchet up the tension on the hitter. We actually have an essay called How to Pitch that Foster wrote in 1907, in which he said that when the pitcher had men on base, he should, quote, strive to appear jolly and unconcerned, as this, quote, unnerves the batter. He was also uh, recorded more than once having his catcher stand far away from the batter to make it look like they were going to do an intentional walk and a big at-bat, and then he would, at the last second, throw the ball down the middle of the plate and steal strike one. But not all of his tricks were were gimmicky like that. In fact, a lot of his theories about pitching were ahead of their time by decades. In the same essay that I mentioned earlier, he advocates for pitchers making increased use of their breaking balls, especially in traditional fastball counts. Foster himself was known for throwing his curveball both for strike one and in full counts, to great effect. That's an idea that baseball is actually still fully coming around to in these last few years, 115 years later. He also liked to throw his breaking stuff out of the strike zone when he was ahead in the count, uh, a very modern practice. He listed the three essentials of good pitching as control, sequencing, and location, which, like, honestly... If you walk into the Houston Astros front office right now, they would probably tell you the same thing. 
So what made Foster a great, great pitcher was not just his physical capabilities, but also his considerable mental acuity as well. And that's going to be the case with Foster in every phase of his career. He becomes the best manager in the game because he's the smartest guy doing it. When he gets control of his own team, he puts together maybe the best squad ever assembled because he was just smarter than all of the other owners he was competing against. And when he gets a chance to form his own league, he puts together by far the best league black baseball ever saw because he was the smartest baseball executive alive at the time. And of course, that great mind does eventually betray him, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. So Foster joined the Union Giants in Chicago. But player movement between teams was common in those days, and Ruben Foster was a very ambitious, ambitious man. So after displaying his considerable potential in leagues in Illinois and Michigan, he was recruited to play for the Cuban X Giants out of Zanesville, Ohio, and he jumped at the chance. The Cuban X Giants were in the running every year to be considered the best blank team in baseball, and so Foster had reached the highest level of his profession at the age of 23. The Cuban X Giants were a major league quality team. In fact, one of Foster's new teammates was a guy named Charlie Grant, and two years prior, in 1901, none other than John McGraw mentioned earlier, had wanted Grant to play on his New York Giants so badly that he concocted this wild scheme where he attempted to pass him off as a Native American named Chief Tokahama until the owner of the White Sox, Charles Comiskey, uncovered and exposed the plot. And Grant was booted from the Giants, and Major League Baseball's color barrier would remain intact for another 46 years. Now, I'm not in the Native American heritage counterfeiting business, but it seems to me that if I was going to try such a scheme, I wouldn't name the character Chief. I wouldn't name the guy Chief. It seems like you're hitting it a little on the nose. So Foster arrives with the Cuban X-Giants. And by the way, if you're wondering why their name is the Cuban X-Giants, or just why so many teams of this era were named the Giants, that latter mystery I can't quite solve for you. But the Cuban ex-Giants originated from a team called the Giants, full of Cuban players, back in the 1880s. And there was some kind of conflict, and a, another faction formed and took off and formed a new team, uh, and they called themselves the Cuban ex-Giants, and actually continued to use that name for like decades afterwards. So Foster arrives with the ex-Giants, and he does not lack for confidence. He was already on record as calling himself the best pitcher in the country, period. But the ex-Giants and their opponents were playing at a much higher level than Foster was used to, and there was a slight adjustment period. This really was the upper echelon now. Uh, in his first start, the ex-Giants lost 13-0. to Foster threw fastballs out of the windup almost exclusively, and his opponents just ran wild on the base pads, stealing bases easily. Foster was humiliated, and he learned his lesson, and according to his manager at the time, E.B. Lamar, quote, from then on he made a study of the game, and every chance he got, he would go out to the big league parks, and he would watch the big clubs in action, unquote. After a year with the Cuban ex-Giants, Foster was their star pitcher, so he did adjust, and in 1903, he led them against the Philadelphia Giants in a historic matchup of the consensus two best black baseball teams of the day in the country, and it was called the Colored Championship of the World. And the ex-Giants actually prevailed five games to two, with Foster finishing with four complete game victories. So he utterly dominated basically the first black World Series, and at this point his reputation soars, and he's considered the best black pitcher alive. The next year, he switches teams to Philadelphia, and he promptly leads them to victory in a rematch over his old club in the second Colored World Championship. In his first start of that series, he strikes out 18 batters, which was three more than the previous record in black or white baseball. 
At this point, Foster is a bona fide celebrity amongst African Americans, and he's actually becoming known by many white Americans as well. But to this point, he was only known as Andrew Foster. That would change after the 1904 season. Foster faced the Philadelphia Athletics and their future Hall of Fame pitcher, Rube Waddell, in an exhibition game, and Foster and his Giants prevailed 5-2. Afterwards, the Philadelphia papers started to refer to Andrew Foster as, quote, the colored Rube Waddell, which was shortened just to the name history would forever know him as, Rube Foster. The next few years featured Foster at the peak of his game, and his prime may have rivaled pretty much anybody else's in baseball history. And get ready, because this is the portion of the podcast where I'm about to throw some ridiculous records and statistics at you. The Philadelphia Giants had quite the successful season in 1905. The Philadelphia Telegraph newspaper mentioned in an item near the end of that season that their record stood at 132 wins, 21 losses, and three ties, though we don't know exactly how they finished. Foster, 25 years old in that season, claims his record that year was 51-4. and As the Giants pitched with a three-man rotation, box scores from that year show his ERA at a tidy 1.66. So, guy was just mowing people down. Just getting up there and throwing that nasty. The Giants beat the ex-Giants to again claim the Frelhofer Cup as the best black team in baseball, and uh, they did the exact same thing in the following year, 1906, this time with a record of 108 wins and 31 losses, and Rube Foster again leading the way. 1906, though, would be an instructive year for Foster off the field as well. In October of that year, Walter Schlichter, who was the owner of Foster's team, the Philadelphia Giants, was elected the president of the newly formed and snappily named National Association of Colored Baseball Clubs of the United States and Cuba. Owners of other black teams made up the rest of the executive board of this new league, which was modeled on the major leagues. The new league's executives claimed that this association was formed, quote, to ensure the perpetuation of colored baseball, unquote, to promote, quote, absolute public confidence in its integrity and methods and to ensure the welfare of colored baseball players as a class by perfecting them in their profession and enabling them to secure adequate compensation for expertness, unquote. And so Foster and his teammates now find themselves at the whim of these owners in this new association uh, as members of this newly formed league. And what they discovered very quickly was that despite all of the nice talk, It turned out these rich white guys did not actually have these poor black guys' best interests entirely in mind. The real point of this new association was to enable collusion amongst the owners in order to suppress players' salaries, which were already definitely suppressed, uh, and also, most importantly from the owner's point of view, to keep players beholden to one team and owner. Because that was really the only leverage that a lot of these players had, was that if they didn't like the conditions under which they were playing for a team, they could up and leave. Owners wanted to take that away. As we've said, before this new association, salaries and conditions for black baseball players on these teams already wasn't good. Foster later would talk of playing in Sunday doubleheaders during this time in his career, in which he knew they were drawing 15,000 fans paying 50 cents apiece. And at the end of the day, the teams would get $100 to split amongst themselves. After the establishment of the new league, things actually got worse. The players were required to pay for their own jerseys now. Their meal stipends were cut. Salaries were suppressed even further, and players had to wait a month to start receiving paychecks. 
Foster, however, was not receiving this new treatment. At this point, he's the biggest star in black baseball. He's a legitimate celebrity known to Americans of all stripes. His arrangement with management remains unchanged. And this, to me, is the moment where the arc of Rube Foster's career trajectory makes a seemingly small but ultimately very significant change. And that's where we will leave it off and pick it up next time in the story and life of Rube Foster. And so that's pretty much it. That's our first podcast episode. What do you think? Episode one. Done. Time to unwrap the Kit Kats. Oh. We don't cork the champagne anymore. We we unwrap the Kit Kats. We have celebratory chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> Which I've been looking much. forward to. Actually, when I first opened my eyes this morning, I was consumed by fear that we wouldn't get this done by our self-imposed deadline of tomorrow morning. So really? I'm glad we're just coming in under the wire. <laughs> I do really want to thank you, Laura, my sweet girl, for... Oh. Uh, pushing me to find some way to make the hundreds of thousands of hours that I've spent in my life reading, watching, and thinking about baseball into something maybe approaching useful, if you could call this that. But I really do appreciate the encouragement, and I appreciate uh, anybody and everybody who's listened to this. Uh, You're probably all friends of ours, and so we appreciate the support. We're in the midst of writing episode two now, and uh, we will have an announcement a week before its release, which should be sometime soon. And don't forget to subscribe to the Quick Hook podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. Yes, and future episodes will feature more Harper Lee, we promise. Yeah, we'll make sure to bring her into the mix, so keep coming back for more. (laughs) All right, thanks, guys. We'll see you at the next one. Bye-bye.